All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're brand new today, uh, thanks for coming. As Leah said earlier, uh, if you'd like to chat with me too about anything about the church or questions you have, I'd, I'd love to do that after the service today or we can buy a coffee sometime too. So just uh, let me know and Spence would love to do that as well. Uh, well, we are going to have a guest preacher today for the first time in uh, about 12 or 13 years. Uh, I was trying to find the date. I couldn't find it. Uh, I don't know when the last time was, but it's been a long time. Uh, but this is Davis Johnson. He is uh, one of the pastors at Hope Community. Church in downtown Minneapolis, good friend of mine, and uh, graciously offered to preach today to give uh, the pastors and elders here a break and uh, just to bring the word. And so we're, we're grateful for him. Uh, another thing that I think this does, I mentioned first service too, that this uh, this affords us as a church is it uh, gives us an opportunity to kind of see uh, and remember how big the gospel is. Uh, so kind of like a missionary coming back and on furlough and sharing what they're seeing God do in a different part of the world that is similar to here, uh, but it's just bigger because it's elsewhere. I think. Uh, a guest preacher uh, can do that as well in a unique way in the sense that the gospel that we talk about here and sing about and preach is not our invention. It's not so, even the way we talk about it. It doesn't belong to us. The gospel belongs to God. It's his property, his invention, his revelation to sinners like us. And so uh, having someone else say the same things that we do every week uh, in maybe your own way, but still the same gospel, same truth, uh, same good news, same hope. Uh, is, a, is an encouraging, edifying thing for churches uh, like us to go through. So I think that'll be a nice side benefit too. But, yeah. um, but I'm going to pray for Davis, and then we'll let him dive right into John 6. So. Awesome. Father, thank you for Davis. Thanks for his friendship, his partnership in the gospel. Thanks for his willingness to be here uh, today to serve our church uh, uh, through the preaching of the word. And as I always pray for myself and uh, other elders here who preach, and I'll pray for Davis now too, that you would help him to technically preach well, that there'd be information that would be useful to us, profitable, as the Bible says for us, uh, that would build us up and that we'd learn something more about who Jesus is and what some of his teachings were. Uh, but more than that, that this would be kind of a put-down-your-pencil uh, moment for us, that we hear God himself speak through Davis uh, as he reads right from the, the holy and living Bible, which is alive and active. It, it is the, the words uh, of God itself. Uh, uh, and so we, we pray for that, that you'd build us up, make us that much more healthy as a community uh, after hearing you call out to us saying, this is who I am. I am love. Uh, this is what I've done for you. L listen, as you say at the Transfiguration, God, listen to my son. He has the words of life. That is what you say every week to us through the, the Bible when it's read and, and, and preached. So um, use him. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see and um, make this be a sweet time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Chris. And hey, good morning, Hiawatha Church. I said Hope Church in first service, and that's not you. That's where I come from. That's not you guys. But uh, good morning, Hiawatha. I got it right this time. And uh, first time having a guest preacher in 12 years, I'm told. And uh, as I said in first service, and it was confirmed in first service, this will be the last time in, for another 12 years to have a guest preacher if it's based on performance. So no, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. I love Hiawatha Church. My wife and I used to live actually very close to here before we moved in November. Uh, and I've come to know a lot of the staff really well and, and have built great friendships with them. Um, and so it's an honor to be here with you guys, especially as a gathered church, uh, to be in person, even if we have to wear masks. Um, it's just really good to see you, and I'm thankful for the opportunity. Uh, I understand you guys are in a big question sermon series, and we're not going to be looking at a specific big question uh, this morning, but I do have a question for you as we open up God's Word. And, and that question is, when's the last time that you actually felt really full. Like you ate a meal and you were like, I, I am filled to the, I don't even want to think 
about food again for at least like two hours. I'm going to fast for like two more hours. Uh, but no, like a Thanksgiving fullness, I'm not going to eat again. When was the last time that happened for you? And, and did it last? Did you say that, like, I don't want to think about food again. How long until uh, you ate again was that in between for you? What was that like? Uh, for me, I, even a week and a half ago, um, I had this steak salad that my friend described well. He said, it's less of a salad and more like a cow hiding behind a bush uh, in terms of what, what, we're, what we're digesting here. And, and he said, you're not going to be hungry for breakfast tomorrow. And I believed him. But then when breakfast came around, man, my stomach started rumbling. I'm like, I, I think I'm going to do breakfast this morning. It didn't last. Uh, I bring this up because we're going to be looking at John 6 this morning. And Jesus is going to talk a lot about food and appetites and hunger. And he's going he's gonna to say that it means more than just a physical appetite. And so that's why I asked that question as we open up God's word. And um, because this service is only three and a half hours, we're not going it's not, to, it's not three, just a little bit shorter than that. Just three hours, three hours? No. Uh, we don't have as much time to read 70 verses, which is what John 6 is. But I would encourage you at some point this week to watch the flow and read John 6 on your own. Uh, instead, this morning, we're just going to take some bits and pieces, um, starting in verse 25. And I'm just going to read to you three sections. And after we do that, um, we'll, we'll go through each passage and kind of make some observations. And so if you do have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to John 6, verse 25. Uh, and if you don't, the words will be on the screen behind me. So it begins, and this is in verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the works of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Next passage, you begin in verse 47. And again, we're just going to read these three sections and then we'll go back through them and make some observations. So, John 6, starting in verse 47 there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the last passage uh, here in John 6 starts in verse 60. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So those are our three passages this morning. As you can see, there's kind of a progression in them. And I wanted to choose three sections that show this crescendo that John 6 is. And it really is that. And like I said, if you have time this week, just read all 70 verses because the way it fits together is amazing. Uh, but for the rest of our time this morning, I just kind of want to paint that picture with you all of what, what's actually happening in John 6 and what does, this, what does this mean? And what does this mean for us, especially as we head into uh, the rest of the week as a scattered church? 
So the passage begins with a crowd actually seeking him. It says when they found him on the other side, and they're talking about a crowd, that means they were looking for them, and they do find him. Uh, they, they ask him this, um, or they, they, they're seeking him and they find him. And for John 6, we kind of have to back up the bus to understand who is this crowd and why are they looking for Jesus? And so the passage, that, part of the passage we didn't read is these first 15 verses, which is maybe a familiar scene for you if you're familiar with some of the Bible. It's the scene where Jesus feeds 5,000 people on the side of a mountain. He takes a few pieces of bread and a few fish, and he actually physically multiplies this miraculously to meet the needs of this hungry crowd. Now, if you're anything like me, I have, I have read that text a number of times, and I've kind of just relegated it to this, like, part of Jesus's ministry that's miraculous and I don't really do that. And that's cool. That's, that's amazing. And I don't, it's just a miracle. Uh, but in John 6, Jesus is going to, he's going to actually show us his playbook. He's going to say, this is why I did this. This is why I fed 5,000 people and caused this miracle to happen on the side of this mountain. And so this is why this crowd is seeking him. And what's, what I love about these first 15 verses in John 6 is the end of it. After Jesus does this, the crowd is amazed by this sign. And read these last two verses with me. It says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, namely feeding all these people, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is, to, who is to come into the world. But perceiving then that they were about to come and make him, take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Did you catch that? So, so Jesus does this miracle and the people are amazed. And their first response is, this guy can take care of our needs. Let's go and take him by force and give him a position of power and authority and actually make him king over us. And Jesus picked up on this and he's like, no, I'm not going to have that happen. Instead, I'm going to remove myself. And that brings us to where we were in the beginning here with this crowd seeking Jesus and then finding him because Jesus had gone away so that they wouldn't become king. Now listen to Jesus' response as this crowd engages him. He says this, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. He sets this tension up between two types of food, food that, food that spoils or perishes, in the words of the ESV, or food that endures. And it's here that we start to see that Jesus is, is meaning something beyond just physical substance. He's, food has taken on more meaning than just a, something that you eat. Food has become a metaphor for Jesus to actually say, this is pointing to something far greater than food itself. And in fact, he's saying, don't work for food that perishes. And so the food and the miracle is becoming an analogy or a metaphor for the motivations behind that which we do and all that we do. And, and, and Jesus is inviting us to consider that. Are you working for food that perishes? Or are you working for food that endures? And not just for like a year, food that endures and ex whose, whose endurance extends into eternity. That's a good question. And, and for me, I mean, here in 2020, I think there are a lot of ways that the interruption of normalcy that all of the last six months has brought about through the number of circumstances, a number of things that feel like they've gotten turned on their head, 
has caused me to see like, man, I think I have been working for food that perishes because my sense of okayness and contentment in life is really disrupted right now. Uh, but the Bible speaks of a type of contentment and joy that kind of acts as a buoy when life interrupts you. It just kind of manages to stay above the water. Now, there's, there's a sadness that can come about and, and life can get interrupted, but is there an endurance about the way that we've been engaging, especially with our faith and the way that we engage our lives around us? Well, Jesus wants to explain a little bit more what this food that endures looks like. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to let John 6 tell us, how do I know if I'm working for the food that endures to eternal life? What does that look like? What will I, what will I know uh, of myself and uh, my place in, in God's world based on this category? And he gives us kind of three categories to think through with the rest of the passage. This food that endures to eternal life looks like bread. He's going to, food is going to take on the form of bread, and it's going to be bread that came down, in the words of Jesus. It's also going to be bread that must be consumed. And lastly, it is bread that is both spirit and life. So I want to look at these each individually with you with our time remaining this morning. So the first category is bread that came down. And I want to go back to what Jesus was saying to these individuals as they were seeking him. Again, he says, don't work for food that's going to perish but food that works for eternal life. And then he says this, the Son of Man is going to give you this food because on him, God the Father has set his seal. He's a, he set a seal of approval is what that means, right? But watch how the crowd responds. They say, it says, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? No, no, back up. Jesus just said, I'm going to give you this food that endures to eternal life. And the people's first response is, what must I do to get the thing that you're talking about right now? Why, why are you asking that? That's a, that's a confusing question. I just told you I was going to give you food. And your first question is, what must I do to get this food? And the crowd's question, I think, reveals one of the most fundamental questions of what it even means to be a human being. We're constantly just wired with this question. We have a natural-born legalism where every day we wake up and we have this sense of, what must I do to be okay? What must I do to be doing the things that God expects of me as my creator? And if you're somebody who's, who's kind of grew up in a religious background, I think the question is verbatim what we're seeing in this text. What must I do to be doing the works of God, the works that God requires of me? Looks like being a good person, following the law, obedience to moral commands, Right? But if we live in Minneapolis and maybe we, we hear language like, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, there still is this question in the back of our minds of what must I do to do the works of fill in the blank? What must I do to be accepted by this group that I really respect? Or what must I do to be accepted by the relationship I'm in? Or even my own self-esteem and my own sense of adequacy as a good person? So whether you're religious or irreligious, we still have a hardwired legalism where every day we wake up and there's this question of, what must I do to be okay in this life? And Jesus is not wanting you to fall into either of those categories. Instead, he's saying, I'm coming to give you something completely different, completely removed even from that question of what must I do? What must you do? What must we do? 
And even though he just told them, I'm going to give you this bread, and they completely miss it because of this focus on self, Jesus is still very kind and responds to them, laying even more of his cards on the table, saying, this is what you must do. And he says this. He says, Jesus answered them and says, this is the work of God. This is what you must do. Believe in him who he has sent. This food that endures to eternal life is completely given, not earned. Or in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul, who's going to come after Jesus, he's going to say, this food is given by grace, not by works. God is the one who hands you this food. You don't get this food with your own hands. Or in the words of Jesus, in this next category, this food is bread that comes down from heaven. It's not something you climb a ladder and into the clouds of heaven and bring down for yourself by that which you do. Listen to what he says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So the one who, have, who may eat of it will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So Jesus is pointing our attention to the fact that this food is something that comes down from heaven by God's work, not our own. And he also reaches back into Old Testament history and pulls the story of manna. And if you're newer to the Bible, it, it's a story from the Old Testament where the, the, the people of God are in the wilderness and they've run out of food and they're, they've been rescued by God, but they feel like, what was the point? I just, I, I'm, not, I'm hungry again and I'm just... Where, who's going to meet my needs? And God does. God is the one who responds. And he actually causes this manna, it's a bread-like substance, to actually fall from heaven so that every day the Israelites will go out and they'll gather what they can just for the day and they'll eat it. And they'll know that God is the one who provided for us today. Seems like a pretty sweet deal. Well, interestingly, as the story unfolds, after this event, there are people like in the Psalms who write about this happening and they help us interpret it theologically. Psalm 78 is one of those places. And listen, listen to these words. These are fascinating. So David or whoever wrote Psalm 78 says this, God rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. I love this. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. They ate till they were gorged like a cow hiding behind a bush. No, he had given them what they craved. But before they turned from what they craved, even while the food was still in their mouths, they kept on sinning in spite of the wonders they did not believe. That's fascinating. So bread is literally falling down from heaven, enough for them to eat that day. And, and they gather it and they eat it. But even while they're chewing this bread of angels, this work of wonders by God, they still have a coldness to him, a type of love of self that says that they don't even believe that last verse. They're so focused on themselves and what their works can do to be okay that they completely disregard God. And so when Jesus hearkens back to this, he, he's calling on the man and saying, in one sense, it's like it. The bread that I've come to give you is from God. It is the food of angels in one sense. But in another sense, it's completely unlike it. Why? Because the people who physically ate the bread in the wilderness still died. 
The manna was not enough to hold on to them for eternity. But the bread that I've come to give you, if you eat it, you will not die. So that's what Jesus wants to see. It's bread that came down. It is bread that is given, not earned. It is bread that is like manna in one sense, and it is bread that is completely unlike manna in another. It's more than just a physical substance. Second category is bread that must be consumed. And we'll pick up right where we left off. Jesus says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. If anyone consumes the bread that I'm offering, life eternal is offered to you. And this bread is Jesus himself. He says, I am the bread of life. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will have eternal life. Sam Nagewa is a critical commentator, uh, biblical scholar who helped put together the Africa Bible commentary. And he nails the description of what's happening here with this idea that the bread must be consumed. He says this, the condition for receiving the life that this bread offers is that one must come to Jesus, which is the same as believing in him. This bread cannot be something that remains outside of you like what's happening with the crowd where they're seeking Jesus and they want to come near him because he's doing some cool things, but it's just enough to have one foot out and one foot kind of in to check things out. Sam Nagewa and John 6 is saying, no, this bread has to be taken in. What could be more intimate than eating? Something that's outside of your body brought to the inside to offer nourishment and to actually change your, your current state. That's what Jesus is getting after here. It must be something that's consumed, not something you just stand by or just kind of intellectually assent to. The bread that Jesus is offering is something to be taken in in order to nourish us in a way that physical bread can't. This is the true bread that Jesus is coming to offer. And and anyone who eats of it, he says, will live forever. And the bread that he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. Now, Jesus hasn't died yet when he's saying these things. He hasn't climbed the cross for the sins of the world yet. And yet he's already calling attention to that fact that he is going to sacrifice his body for the life of the world, for all people who are welcome, who would call on Jesus. Jesus is going to sacrifice himself. Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians as he's looking back to the night that Jesus betrayed. And he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this bread that must be consumed is so intertwined with the sacrificing of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for the world that it's actually meant to be taken in to offer nourishment in a way that even extends beyond physical food. And it's a new covenant One that does not say, do this and live, but one that says, do this in remembrance of what I have done for your life. It's something that is to be consumed and taken to offer reflection on the work of the one who went before us. The one who laid down his life in love for our sins. And consuming it 
is meant to change us. And reflecting on it is meant to continue to change us. One of the ways I, I, I was thinking about this this week is, is, a, is a show um, that aired 15 or so years ago called Band of Brothers. I see one not. Anyone, anyone else seen the show? It's fantastic. Yeah, a couple more. Amazing, amazing show. So it's actually a, a, it's a retelling of some dramatic uh, historical events that took place during World War II following what's called the Easy Company, which is a division of the infantry. Um, and they follow this unit from training in the U.S. into Europe and then all the way through the end of the war in Japan. And there's this amazing scene that really captures what Jesus is talking about here with this idea of consuming this bread and that changing the way we operate within the world. And the scene I'm thinking of is between a lieutenant and a private. So a lieutenant is one of authority and a private's kind of a newcomer in the army. And the lieutenant name is, is, is Ronald Spears. And he's talking to a private who kind of confesses to him as a lieutenant saying, Lieutenant, I have to tell you, on D-Day, when I woke up, when we had landed, I hid. I did not pursue my unit to go and fight with them. Instead, I hid in this hole. And I feel this need to, to confess that to you. And Lieutenant, Ron, Lieutenant Spears looks at him and says, Private, what's your name? And the private says, Blythe, sir, Albert Blythe. And Spears says, why did you hide in that hole, Blythe? Blythe says, I was scared. And Spears says, no, we're all scared. You hid in that hole. And this is where he says, except because you need, you need to accept the fact that you're already dead. You haven't done that. The, the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function in this war. So he first calls on him to tell him his name and then he redirects his purpose in this war. He says, you're already dead and you haven't thought that way yet. Right now you're holding on to something that's causing you to stay in this hole. Jesus does something very similar with what he's telling us to consume. He's saying, you need to consume me. You need to come to me and the, the word that I offer, which is the word of my death for you, but Jesus' word goes far beyond what a lieutenant can say to a private. Because a lieutenant can't say to a private, you've been resurrected, but Jesus can. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says this about our state. Paul, the lieutenant, saying to us as private, says, you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life that you now live in the flesh, you get to live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. The reason we're overcome with fear and not functioning as we are supposed to function in this world is because we have not put this on, this death of Jesus for us, being united with him in his resurrection as well. We're not those who go about without hope in the world. We're, go, we're, we're those who go about all of what we've been called to, recognizing that we have been risen with Christ. And we're meant to take this in, to be consumed by it as we consume the bread and the wine, the substance of Jesus and his gospel. I want to read this, this part. Uh, we didn't have time to read in the beginning, but I just want to read it to you because Jesus is going on to describe what he means by all of this consumption of the body and the blood. He says, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You're stuck in that hole of fear, trying to preserve yourself and do the works that you think God requires. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is I who do the work, not you. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also lives because of me. The death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners like us is the gospel, the good news of God. It is the true bread and the true drink that we get to take in and consume and be changed by it, to recognize our place in God's world so that we can function as Christians, so we can function as soldiers, so to speak, in the war of what it means to even be alive in this world. Jesus can't get away with talking like this with the crowd, though. And so this third category of bread that is spirit and life we're going to follow and track the response of the crowd. And again, I encourage you, if you have time this week, to just simply read John 6 and let the crescendo land with you, specifically with the response of this crowd. If you remember back in the beginning, this crowd wanted to make him king after he had fed the 5,000. They were so elated with his ability to meet what they thought was their real need that they wanted to elect, more than elect, they wanted to just make him by force their king. And even their coming to him in verse 27 shows that there's a, there's a softness, a wanting, a seeking out of Jesus that soon gets interrupted as the passage unfolds. Wanting to make king gets replaced by some questions. How can you talk like that? Which then turns into some disputing and some grumbling, which is seen in, in, in verses like verse 52, which says, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're so, they're so lost in the, the physical substance of what Jesus is saying that they've missed the whole point and they begin to grumble. More than this, many of his disciples hearing what Jesus is saying about eating his flesh and drinking his blood say, this is a hard saying. Those who even followed him are saying, who can even listen to it? I want to close my ears to what is being communicated to me by this guy who we wanted to make king. And then lastly, the response after Jesus is going to um, say, we'll revisit what Jesus says in response to that. They cancel him. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The disciples and the crowd and the Jews, all three categories, after hearing Jesus describe this, canceled him. I want, I want nothing to do with this Jesus anymore. Cancel culture is something that we're seeing a lot of right now online and um, in other spheres. Uh, someone that we disagree with, we just need them done. They need to lose their job. They need to be canceled, so to speak. Wikipedia describes cancel culture as this. It's the practice of withdrawing support or canceling public figures after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Is that not what Jesus has just done here? Is this not what Jesus is experiencing? He's gone from a place of being sought after and wanted to be a place of being questioned 
to finally being outright canceled by those who have drawn near to him. And in one sense, before, before we criticize this crowd and say, I would never do that, I want us to think about our last six months. It's been a very hard six months for all of us. I mean, on a global level, first of all, we have the pandemic. But for those of us who live within the greater Twin Cities area, with the loss of George Floyd's life at the hand of police and some of the things that have been exposed in light of that with some of the ways that systems have existed uh, underneath our nose without us, without us realizing it um, in some sense and others just an inability to fix it or feeling that way. Who of us has not in one sense reflected this crowd in the way that we've thought about God? In the way that we've seen real needs like people being fed, 5,000 people having a need to be fed, and come to Jesus and saying, well, aren't you going to do something about this? You have the ability to do something about this. Are you going to sit idly by? Why all this talk about your blood and your body being eaten? There are real needs to be met right here in our city. There are 5,000 mouths to be fed, in fact. And yet Jesus knows that if he were to just do this miracle again and feed those 5,000 that evening, like he did for lunch, what would happen tomorrow morning? There would again be a need for 5,000 more mouths to be fed. And Jesus doesn't see that as unimportant. In fact, he sees it as quite important. And its ability to point to a greater substance that Jesus wants to give, not just for 5,000 people, but for, as he said, the life of the world. Here again, his words. You take offense at this? What are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascending to the place where he came from? The place at the, the, the right hand of God. I came down to meet your needs, but you don't even know your needs. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The bread that I am providing for you, for your consumption, is of a far greater need than an appetite that can get met and will just be hungry again in three hours. The very words that I speak to you are what I came to give you. In John 4, he says, I have a food for you to have that you don't even know about yet. That's what I'm feeding on. And my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. The work of God, which is to come and reconcile lost sinners to himself from all corners of the world. Jesus is going to climb a cross and die in our place for both the cancelers and the canceled, for those who are religious and irreligious, Jesus is coming to pave a third way that looks like belief in him. To meet the true needs of all people. To provide a type of food that will extend far into the future from those 5,000 mouths that were hungry, but to our mouths here in 2020. So that when Jesus comes and speaks his word to us, which is spirit and life, 
we come to feed on the eternal word of truth and be changed by it and refreshed in it and in our consuming it, find nourishment that causes us to go out into the world and be his hands and feet in all sorts of ways that look like feeding the 5,000 physically at times. Jesus is co-opting the words of Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with this manna, this bread from heaven, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. It was the bread of angels. He did this to teach you that men and women, humankind, does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And the loudest word that God speaks, the final decisive word of God, is the cross of Christ, the good news that Jesus died in our place to secure us for eternity, to do that which we could not do, to give us the food that never spoils, the eternal bread that only the Son of Man can give, that our work cannot achieve. He came to solve the problem in the place that our hands can't reach, in our hearts. This constant coldness and turning away from God and, and, and loving self at the expense of love for God and others. Jesus came to fix and heal and provide the food that we could not gather. In the words of C.S. Lewis, reflecting on these themes of, of impact on this earth versus thinking of the eternal spiritual realm, this food that Jesus is talking about, which is spirit and life, he says this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world, the present problems that we experience in this life, are just the ones that thought the most of the next. Did you catch that? The ones who had the biggest impact in our physical uh, cities and world were the ones who were lost in heaven. They were so f uh, set on feeding on the words of God, which is spirit and life, that they were the ones that had the biggest impact. He gives examples. The apostles themselves, who set on foot in the conversion of the entire Roman Empire, the great men and women who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals, who were instrumental in abolishing the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Precisely because they ate the bread which was spirit and life. Their hearts and their minds were set on a place that Jesus was providing, not that, not that which their hands were going to give. Or in the words of Isaiah, which started our service, Jesus is inviting all of us to no longer spend money for that which is not bread that which is not eternally satisfied, that food that spoils. Instead, he says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good, my bread, my blood, and delight yourselves in this rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear this word of God, this gospel, which says that Jesus laid down his life for you and rose again from the dead, proving that it worked. Listen to his good news. Come to Jesus. Hear that your soul may live. We do this as a church regularly by receiving the elements of the broken bread and spilled blood of Jesus. We do it to receive what he did 
as a proclamation that we are ones who need saving. We bring nothing to this table but open hands to receive what Jesus is going to do for us. And so I encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to grab the bread and the, and the juice on your way in, uh, you can find it in the back or you can find it up here during this last song. But I encourage you to take these, to receive them, and to spend some time, even right now with Jesus, saying, show, show me in my life where I've been working for food that spoils and help me to turn from that to receive what only you can give, life everlasting, for all of the present problems that I'm facing, both in my home as well as in our city and our nation and our world. Receive the good news of Christ, the joy and the sustenance of the bread from heaven. Consume it and let him change you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which has come to us from heaven. And it is not a word that is to remain outside of us, Lord, but you bring us to yourself and you say you have united yourself to us, that it is actually your work that is our hope. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the ways that we settle for food that perishes and our discontentment so often stems from this place. I pray that you would help us turn uh, or to feel you even turning us to return to you as we look down and see it as your hands that's holding us up in the first place. Father, you are the one who gives us this bread and we can pray these things with confidence because you died for us and then walked out of that grave and it makes all of the difference. Father, say to us that we have been united to you as we take this bread and, and this juice and help us to think on all that you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen.